We're going through the book of Ephesians, and as I mentioned before, that the book can be divided into half. One word is driving the first half, and there's another word that's driving the second half. The word that's driving the first half is wealth, everything that we've received in Christ with our salvation. And for three chapters, you should just walk out of three chapters of preaching and, or even reading and say, you know, I'm the richest person in the planet. You know, what I have in Christ is filling every single square inch of me. I mean, if you really look at it, understand it, perceive it, and conceive it, and then I get an eternity with him after I die. I mean, that's what chapters 1 to 3 is saying. You have so much wealth in Christ and in salvation that we don't even conceive or perceive of how much we have. And then at chapter 4, you get the word therefore. And what the word therefore, that's the first word in chapter 4. Therefore means because of all this wealth that you have, walk this way. And then you have this word that's driving the last three chapters, which is walk. Since you are so rich, since you are so wealthy in Christ, and since you have received everything from Christ in regards to salvation that has been granted to you, walk in such a way. And that is what is driving um, the rest of the book, driving the rest of the three chapters. That we need to walk. And what's going to happen is it's going to get really, really practical. It's going to get so practical that they're going to say, walk this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, that I can make this into a four-year series. <laughs> Just that's how practical it's getting. Because of every single word that is even stated, this is how you walk. And then we can go through the, all the dynamics of how to walk in regards to those words. But I do want to get through the book because we've got a whole bunch of Bible that is rich that we want to go into. Um, get through the book within about a year, a year and a couple months, a year and a half, something like that. So we're going to um, double up a little bit. And what we're going to have is we're going to have two sermons in one this morning. Because there's given two directives, walk this way and walk that way. So two different things, and we're going to take a total of three verses, and we'll see the two directives of how he wants us, how he's challenging us to walk. Ephesians 4, 25 through 27 is a passage that we'll be working with, and you'll definitely see the divide in the, in the sermons that are going to happen here. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil a foothold. So you can easily see in our passage that we're going to talk about laying off falsehood. Don't lie. Then we're going to shift even to a different topic. Be angry. Do not sin. So let's look at put off falsehood and don't lie. Before we even get into that, we have to carry last week's sermon into this week's. And uh, it's just the model of a direction that Paul has given us. And we have to understand this piece before we even understand how we're supposed to walk. This is what we need to understand. Number one, a Christian leads a godly life not because they are told to, but because they have been infused with a glorious fact of who they are. The entire three chapters of Ephesians is telling us who we are in Christ. That salvation has been granted to us. Salvation has been given to us. And as a result of who you are in Christ, what are you doing? That glorious fact has completely infused you to put on a new self and to get rid of the old. Many people don't view the Bible that way. Many people believe the Bible is a, is a, a book of commands, book of law. Do this. Why? Because it says so. Do this. Why? 
because it is explained that you must do it or else. We, that's where we often look at the Bible. But what it really comes down to, which all of us know to believe, is we never do anything we're told to do. <laughs> we're, just, we're just not. And the Bible doesn't function that way. I tell you to do it, therefore you better do it. Nobody's, people are not motivated to be a believer and even be a Christian if that's the way the Bible speaks to us. No, instead, we've been infused with the glory of fact that we are children of God, and because of that position, something comes into us and comes out of us. I'll give you an example. The President of the United States, if he's a President of the United States, what's going to happen to him? His chin is going to be up. His shoulders must be broad. He must be strong carrying the most powerful person in the world. Under pressure, he cannot break. He must be wise, honor the soldiers, and love the people that are underneath him as he carries that position. When somebody walks into that position, the person is conformed to that position and saying, as a result of me being here, this is now what I look like. When you're a Christian, Christianity, God is saying, take the role. Take the role. You have lived an old life, but take the role of this new one that you have found in salvation. Take the role. And what is the role? We're going to see it as we go through, and I'll even explain it even further in the chapter. Put off falsehood is the first one. Don't lie is the second one. Be angry, do not sin. Don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Get rid of bitterness. Get rid of rage. Get rid of slander. Get rid of malice. Be kind, compassionate, love one another, forgiving one another. Because of all the wealth that you've had in the first three chapters, therefore, this is who you are, and this is what comes out of you. If we view the Bible, do this, because God told us so, it's not going to drive us. It's not going to send us. It's not going to motivate us. It's not going to push us. Paul knows that, and he knows that that's not how Scripture functions. Therefore, we're going to back up just the couple verses that are behind this verse and look at the passage we looked at last week, Ephesians 4, that in reference to your former life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust and deceit, and that you, being renewed in the spirit of the mind, and put on the new self, which, is, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. If God wanted you to do something because he says so, Paul wouldn't have said all that. He wouldn't have said all that. You have an old self. Put off the old self. And now that you're born again, a believer in Jesus Christ, put on this new self. You should be infused with the fact of who you are. A new creation. A new man. A new woman in Christ. And what does that look like? Put off falsehood. Put off lying. Be angry. Do not sin. So I just want to work mostly on this, start on this falsehood. Put off falsehood. If you're going to put on the garment of Christianity, you want to look like what you have received. Therefore, what you want to do is put off falsehood. Number two, what makes you human is the ability to keep a word. This is the first command. Put off falsehood. And why is it so important? Because it is the only thing, one of the only things that make you ability, make you human. In other words, we are less human when we have no integrity at all. And the reason why is because nobody else in this planet, living animal or creature or computer, can 
make a promise and keep it. Your computer's never made a promise and kept it. I mean, I have cows. They've never made a promise and kept it. In fact, I go back two months ago, and uh, two months ago I was sound asleep in bed, and it was about 3 o'clock in the morning. And uh, my wife started saying, the cows are bawling outside. Maybe you should see what's going on. I'm like, why would I see what's going on? I'm sound asleep. They ball off it. She goes, they're really bawling outside. Maybe you need to see what's going on. So I got up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and five cows were in my yard out of the fence. The gate was open. And so what do I do? I just rally the troops, 3 o'clock in the morning. Honey, out of bed. And then I yelled upstairs, kids, get out of bed. Get your boots on. The cows are out. So 3 o'clock in the morning, the Dedera family got up out of bed and charged outside with a strategy to get these cows back in. Now, I wish I could explain all my land and how things work, but they were kind of channeled in one direction that we can get them in as long as they don't cross us, pass us. Because if they pass us, they go out to the road, and then they'll walk down the road, and then they will go alongside the fence. The only way to get them back is to go all the way back, this way, and then this way. So it's really hard. Easy if they're not, if they're in this, this cove, this U thing. But if they go out and around, it's really hard to get them out. So four of them, we got in piece of cake. One of them passed by, went to the road, went down, and went on to the neighbor's yard where he should not be. And the only thing that was going for us is that it was three o'clock in the morning and the neighbor was asleep. <laughs> it's like, okay, we got to keep quiet. We got to be quiet and we got to get this cow back into the property. And uh, so we positioned ourselves, one person here, one person here, one person here, and I was the runner to herd the cow back. And uh, sure enough, I'd herd the cow back, but the cow doesn't separate from the herd very far. And I needed him to get to separate from the herd very far, but as soon as these keep on bawling, he'd go back to where they're bawling. I'm like, I gotta get him out here, I gotta get him. So I was hollering, not hollering, I was quietly caressing whatever it is to try to get the cow, and then the cow went all the way into the backfield, which means the backfield is now swampy, I was up to my knees in mud. The cow actually could have died as it went into, almost into the slough. The cow was getting nervous, and for an hour and a half in the middle of the night, we kept quiet enough to try to get him in, but that took a long time. And sure enough, guess what happened? The Dedera family succeeded. The cow got in. But the next day, I went out to have a conversation with the cows. <laughs> and I said, you promise me that you will never do that again. And my conversation carried some weight because I said, my freezer is empty and you will be the next one shot and ate if you do it again. And that cow looked at me as if I was stupid. You can't, I'm not going to keep a promise. I'm not going to, if the gate's open, I'm going to go out, and I look at that cow, and he's, he's not going to keep a promise at all. I have to control him. I have to manipulate him. My dogs don't keep promises, and they're even good animals. I look at my dog and say, please, keep a promise. They say, where's my bone? Where's my treat? Manipulate me. Pull my treat out and control me by it, because I'm not going to walk by my word, or I'm not going to walk by my integrity. I'm going to walk whether I'm fed or not, and if you choose not to feed me, I'm not going to play around with you. It's complete control. The difference between a beast and a human is a human can make a promise and keep it. A human can make a promise and keep it. A human doesn't need to act like a beast 
that lives on the accordance to get exactly whatever he wants, when they want, and how they want. And if somebody questions if they did it right, they lie to exactly keep what they want. If there's a problem in this world right now, it's because we live in a world where people don't keep their promises, more and less make them anymore. You say, you know, I'd just be happy to you know, live with you. I don't want to make a promise that I would, you know, that I would do that. I just, you know, I've got to be able to, to get out if it, if it doesn't work. And, and what we do is we just don't even want to make promises. So we don't make promises. Why? Because we don't want to have to break them. But what has taken place is that then we start living on this planet as animals. Because animals are nothing more than manipulated people that don't stand on their word, but stand on their greed, stand on their mission. Stand on what they can accomplish and what they can get out of people. And as soon as it's threatened, all you do is lie about it so you can continue to get exactly what you want. Ephesians 4 says this, Therefore, this is the first command on how to walk. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, that means let your word stand. Speak truth, each one of you. That means don't lie with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Number three, when you keep your word, you say, I have my needs, I have my instincts, I have my desires, I have my drives, and they change all the time. But my word will stand above all of them. Scripture is completely based on a promise. The promise was given clear back in the Old Testament when Abraham was there. I'm going to make a covenant with my people, and the promise was given. And when God said, I'm going to make a covenant with my people, what did he say? He says, this is who I am. He just said the words. This is who I am, and whatever I say will be who I am if I keep the promise. If I don't keep the promise, whatever I say, who, who knows what? But what he does, he says this in the Old Testament, this is my covenant I make with Abraham. Now all the way through the Bible, this promise, the layers are unfolded inside of this promise. And we watch a God of complete truth that makes a statement and will be bound, even though he is God, will be bound by the statement that he makes bound so closely that he says, I am going to save you, and it's going to require the sacrifice of my son to do it. It will be done no matter how I feel, no matter my desires at the time, no matter what my drives are. My drives, my desires, and my passions will make a promise, and they will be centered around completing the promise. That's what Scripture is about. And since that's what Scripture is about, we, as a result, can open up the Word of God and say, if it says it, it's it. If it says it, it's truth. If it says it, I don't have to question it. If it says it, I know it, because we see Him give it to us and then carry it through. Last week, I went to visit somebody who lost his wife. Boy, I tell you, that's not an easy situation to walk into. But every time... I walk into a situation like that, I can walk with security and an answer. And I'll tell you the answer I could give him. I'm glad we're not sitting here questioning knowing where your wife is at right now. I'm glad that we can sit here and we can say she's better off than we are right now. Because of what was granted to her. Christ's life, she can be saved by not her own. 
That security is, brings peace. The security brings strength. We know that we can sit here and we're suffering as we are, are suffering, but we know that God is here with us inside of our suffering. It's a promise. It's there. We can hang on to it. We can, we can carry it. In the darkest times, we can take promises and saying, eh, God doesn't work off of emotions. It works off of his word. It works off of his promise. In fact, everything functions in, regard to, in regards to integrity because that's why he built it, that everything functions in regards to integrity so we don't have to guess if things are wrong or, or not. In fact, uh, William Barclay makes this statement about the church, which is um, interesting. He says this, We can only live in safety because the senses and the nerves pass true messages to the brain. In fact, the sense and the nerves took to passing false messages if it happened in the brain. For instance, they told the brain that something was cold, cool, and touchable when in fact it was hot and burning. Life would very soon come to an end. A body can only function accurately and healthy when each part of it passes true messages to the brain and to the other parts. If then the church is all bound into one body, the body can only function when we speak the truth. All deception impairs the working of the body. Think about it. If your little electrodes in your brain decide to lie, <laughs> decide to do what absolutely they want to do rather than what they are put together and promised to do. According to William Barclay, he's saying that if it says cold and it is hot, you're not going to last very long. Because if it does not have its integrity that when it's cold, it's cold, it's hot, it's hot, then you won't know, and if you don't know, you will die. If you look at a cliff and say, well, it's only a step away instead of 300 feet away, well, you better not step away from it, but your brain, you're trusting your brain on that behalf. Everything exists in power over integrity, over in a promise, and we depend on it. And the hard part about our relationships and the hard part about us functioning in the world is that we are people that should hold promises, but we are people that don't, so nobody knows what to lean on, or how to lean, or where to lean, what to know, what is the truth, what is not the truth. What you're getting in this passage is you're getting that you have received something that is powerful, which is the gospel. Put away your old life and put on this new life that allows you to function inside of your family for the health of your family. Allows you to function inside of your body for the health of the body. Allows you to function inside of your job for the health of the job and also for the proclamation of who our God is and why we do it. It says, lay aside falsehood. Speak truth to each other and with his neighbor. For you are members of of one another. Do it here, and then do it out here. Look at the next statement that he gives. Be angry and do not sin. Put away falsehood, speak truth, and then just goes right to another directive. Since you are now a believer, this is what you put on. This is who you are. This is what you're infused by. This is what you should look like. Be angry and do not sin. So what we want to do here is we want to say, well, ask the question, what is angry? And then how can we be angry and not sin? What is anger? Here's anger. 
Number four, anger is an emotional defense mechanism that reacts to defend a love. My dad was a chief engineer on a tugboat, meaning that he lived mostly out at sea, and he was a, a tough, rough guy, we'll, we'll put it that way, and he did not become a Christian until later um, in life, in fact, um, um, just a couple years before he ended up dying. Um, so being a, um, a chief engineer at tugboat, yes, you are a rough guy, but also you really don't have a place necessarily. I mean, in other words, there's three boys in our family, is me, and then I was the middle boy, and then um, the... Um, my youngest brother is a worship leader, one of the worship leaders that are here. So it was us three boys. And uh, so when my dad came home, us three boys, you know, said, well, we better mind our P's and Q's, you know, because dad's home. And dad had some things that he liked to do. You know, he liked to smoke <laughs> like crazy, and he also liked to sit in front of the TV. So he'd sit in front of the TV, lay on the floor, and, and, uh, and uh, smoke. And we were like, oh, okay, this is frustrating. So we moved back to the back, you know, more to the, um, the family room. And, uh, and try not to bug dad in the process of watching TV. But as we were growing up, we were kids that, I don't know if you guys did this with your siblings, but we argued. <laughs> uh, we fought. In fact, we, we, you know, we, we fought all the time. And, and there was one in particular evening that uh, we were in an argument. All three of us boys, I think, were in the argument. And the way my mom approached us arguing is that she would sit there and observe. <laughs> she would just sit there and watch it. It would just take place. And then, and then all of a sudden, it would get a little louder. And as it get a little louder, she just sit there and observe. But uh, this particular night, our argument started getting a little louder and a little louder. And as it started to increase, the volume on the TV started to increase. <laughs> and then my mom started yelling, James, turn the TV down. He goes, I can't hear it. The boys are screaming back there. And my mom was like, you guys settle down. James, turn the TV down. And you can see the escalation start to take place in the home. And then to the point where my dad said, and this is what he always says when it's over, get the stick. <laughs> and what that means is that somebody is in trouble. Now, a lot of you guys think, get the stick. What are you talking about in this world that we live in? Well, just to explain the stick. The stick is a paddle, just to let you guys know. It is a paddle that the pastor carved. He carved them in his basement, and he told the congregation, you know, you parents out there, you know, I've got some paddles that I've carved, you know, that you guys, if you guys like them, I will give them so you can discipline your kids. This is back in the old days that probably some of you guys don't even know what we're talking about. But, and my mom would just raise her hand and say, give me four of them. And he would look at it and say, well, you have three kids. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I know, but my Michael has a hard button. We got to make sure that he's going to get his get his whipping. So, so my mom was all over these paddles that the pastor was handing out. So it's not, you know, it's not going too far here. So, but he always called it a stick, and uh, he'd always, you know, when he popped up and stand on his feet, get the stick, um, we knew somebody's in trouble, which if you think about it, I don't know why he ever even said that, because it's not like all of us are going to go get the stick. I mean, all of us are going <laughs> to run for cover. I mean, that's exactly what three boys do. Get the stick. That just means the spanking's going to come as we all run for cover, and sure enough, he was looking for the stick, couldn't find it, but I was close enough and said, all right, and gave me a spanking um, right there, and I got a, I got a good whooping. And, uh, and then my mom walked into the front room, and she said something I'll never forget. And I don't know why I'll never forget this argument in particular, but she said the words, James, you spanked the wrong kid. <laughs> and, oh, boy, did I feel justified. <laughs> and I, I, are you, you going to go get the wrong kid? I mean, that's what I wanted to say, but, you know, I just, you know, I just remember that word. And, but then my dad said something I'll never forget, and I don't know why I'll never forget it either, but he said, well, at least it's quiet. And then he went down and he watched, he watched the TV. And then, then everything, was all, everything was all done, you know, from, from there. You know, I'm not giving you guys direction on how to raise your kids. I'm just telling you, telling you stories. But what was going on in that process? 
my dad was defending a love. We were threatening his TV. <laughs> we were threatening him relaxing. We were threatening his peace. And as we're threatening it, he's like, I could deal with it for a while. I could deal with it. And it just keeps on climbing and climbing and climbing. Until all of a sudden there's a pop, and then it's like, okay, I've got to defend this love, and I've got I to get back to it. And that is what takes place. And we look at my dad and say, okay, you, you shouldn't have done this. But we do it all the time. In fact, we exist doing it. All of our anger rises from a threat, a love that is being threatened by us, or being threatened. In other words, we'll just talk about men. Men love respect. You ever been in an argument with your wife, and when you're arguing with your wife and she doesn't respect you, what takes place? Anger. <laughs> Anger all of a sudden rises. We don't even know where it rises. We don't understand why it rises, but it comes. Why? Why is it coming? Because you want to defend that love of respect. And, and ladies, when we're in a conversation, and you're in this, not conversation, when you guys are in this argument, you want to be valued. You want to be heard. Then all of a sudden, I'm not valued. I'm not heard. What's happening with you? Oh, you want to defend that love. And what happens is that love, it all of a sudden rises to defend it. And as a result, it just keeps getting louder and louder and louder and louder. What are you doing? What am I doing when it takes place? All we're doing is we're on a mission to defend our, defend our loves. We love comfort, and if the government threatens our comfort, we're going to get angry at the government. We love peace, and if our neighbor threatens our peace, we're going to get angry at a neighbor. We love honor, and if in our jobs we are not getting it, we're going to get angry at our employees or angry at the people we walk next to. We love money, and as we love money, if that is getting threatened, we're going to get angry. That's what it is. It's an emotion, a protection mechanism to protect a love. That's what anger is. So when you look at the Bible, it says what? Be angry. <laughs> it doesn't say don't be angry. In fact, I could just preach on that verse all day. Be angry. <laughs> you, okay, let's pray and you guys are dismissed. Be angry. Is that a sin? Is that a sin? Just look at God for a second. As you're looking at God, God was angry at his Israelites committing idolatry. God is angry when we fall away. I'm married to God's daughter, and God is angry when I hurt her. It's God's daughter. He's given me responsibility to take care of her. And when I don't, God's angry. All the way through Scripture, you can see that God is angry. He is angry at the wicked. He is angry at people touching his kids, abusing his kids. Jesus was angry. The Pharisees were in the temple, using God's temple for the purpose of making money rather than for worshiping God. God carried an anger all the way through. What is he doing on every single one? The adultery, the wickedness, the, the, um, the loving uh, his daughter that I'm married to, um, going to the temple. What is the common denominator of all that to anger? God is protecting a love. He's protecting a love. That's why he says, be angry. But then he uses the words, do not sin. Now, if you hear these words, do not sin, it's saying something. It's saying that anger is going to come and the opportunity or the movement into sin can take place really fast. So look out. 
Anger is going to come, and as anger comes, you're going to watch out. It's there. Sin is going to follow if you don't watch out. The Bible doesn't say, be joyful and don't sin. It doesn't say that. Why? Because joyful is not going to be the top where this sin is going to pour out. The sin is going to move. So when it comes to be angry, yeah, that's what's said. Be angry. But then how do you do it and not sin? Let's answer that question because the verse answers, I believe the verse answers that question. How do you be angry and do not sin? Number five, prioritize your loves. As I mentioned before, every single emotion of anger comes up for the purpose of defend something that you love so much. And every time it comes up, do you know what we can do? We can locate where it is coming from. We can locate where it is coming from. Because if anger comes up, I am defending something. Ask the question, what am I defending? Now, the thing that's going to hurt us is that 90% of the things that we're defending, we shouldn't be defending. Respect, comfort, peace, pride, honor. We're boiling with fumes. As we're boiling with fumes, we can say, what am I trying to defend? And if you want to be real with ourselves, which we want to be real with, we want to look back and we want to see all these things that we're defending. And it's, <laughs> I mean, if you open our eyes, it brings me conviction, but it also brings me into reality of what's ruling me and a reality of my first love. Because God has given us positions. And in his position, he says, I want you to put me as your first love. And if I'm going to be angry and not sin, I'm going to put God as a dominant first love. And then when pride is threatened and I get angry, oh boy, I better just shut my mouth and not even talk to God right now because it's so sad of the things that I defend. But it opens up my eyes. It opens up truth to us. Anger is there to open up truth to us to see exactly where our heart is at and what God is saying this I should be your first love and if you want to be angry do not sin make me your first love and then evaluate every time your anger and then as a result you know what's going to happen your mind is going to go to where God's mind is and they're going to connect the things that make God angry will make you angry the things that don't make God angry that shouldn't make you angry you're going to start pushing out of your life Mark 10, 14 says this, but when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. That means on fire, angry. I was indignant and said to them, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Children were coming to him. They just wanted to see Jesus. And the disciples, no, 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 no. All of a sudden, emotional protection mechanism came up, and God said, no, you stop. These children will come to me. You see what takes place is when God's our first love, it will align us to be angry at the things God's angry at and motivate us to be disciples of Christ in regards to where our mind and being consistent with the pattern that Christ has in his mind. We should be indignant with what has happened to our children in regards to sex slaves sex trafficking that has taken place. We should be indignant at what's happening with our children that are taking place with the pornography that is, that is so out there. 
We should be looking at it and saying, this world is struggling, and it should break us to our knees in prayer, because that's exactly what anger is for, the breaking of the knees to prayer to say, this is not good, this is not healthy, and children are being hurt as a result. We should be indignant. Is it wrong? It's not wrong. You just went on the same page that God went on when he was angry. The only way to do it and not sin is to make your first love God and evaluate your anger that arises. The next thing you should do is evaluating your loves. You should make your mate the next one. That should be your next one. We always say it, you know, what's your first love? What's your second love? God's my first love. My family's my second, meaning my husband or, or my wife is a second. If you put it into context that my wife is my next love, I mean, the next love that I, I, I completely love, if I am angry to her to the point to suppress her in absolutely any way, then there is a love that has trumped her. And as a result of a love that has trumped her, it is driving me and driving me and driving me and driving me. Look at what that love is. Catch ourselves. Find out what is that love. Is it respect? Is it, is it honor? Is it because I don't feel loved or is it because I don't feel wanted? What is driving me to oppress people? Because remember what anger does. Be angry, but do not sin. When we sin, it's because our loves are out of order. If you're going to be angry and not sin, we've got to prioritize them. Put them in priority, and then be honest with yourself as you evaluate them. Next thing, do not suppress it. Acknowledge it. Many people think that Christianity, what you do is you just suppress anger. In other words, you just throw it down and act like it's not there. Well, what happens with anger, if you throw it down, you bury it, and as it's not there, you start using other terms. And what is other terms? You say, I am really, really worried. You might not be worried. You might be angry, and you're just denying it. I'm really stressed out right now. You're not stressed out. You might be angry, and you're just denying it. I'm really depressed. You're not depressed. Sometimes you could be angry, and you're denying it. I'm really hurt. You could be angry, and you're denying it. Anger, remember, gives us a revelation of our loves and who we are. It's an opportunity to say, I'm just going to say I'm angry and I need to work with God in this process. And I need to see who I am in this process. I need to see what I'm doing in this process. And I need to see if I'm sinning in this process. It's a time where our eyes can be open rather than to suppress it. No, I'd say acknowledge it. Ephesians 4, 26 says be angry, but in the process of acknowledging it, this is a process we get to change. This is the process we get to understand what is going on inside of our heart, what is going on inside of our mind. Psalms 145 says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Slow to anger means it's very, very under control. Even his righteous anger is very, very under control. He wanted to make a statement when his disciples were pushing away those kids, and he made an igni- a, a powerful statement. And we see the statement, and as a result of seeing that statement, we see his heart. But really, God should just hammer all of us for what we do. No, he doesn't. What does he do? He, he, he's slow to anger, he's rich in love, and he is completely and entirely righteous. And his anger is completely and entirely righteous. Don't just suppress it acknowledge it, work on it, talk about it, bring it up to your mate. What am I defending? I mean, if you want to get connected with your mate, just say, you know what, I've been angry with you, and I need to know what I'm defending, and I want to look at my life, and as I look at my life, I see I am defending my respect. 
and I want to say I'm sorry. And then your mate would probably say, well, this is what I'm defending. And then all of a sudden, this is when harmony starts to take place. Number seven, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't let the sun go down while you're in it. This is a statement that if you have righteous anger or if you have unrighteous anger, what's going to take place is you need to sleep at night. You need to sleep at night. That's why this statement is made. If you have righteous anger or unrighteous anger, there's times that you need to take to sleep at night. And the reason why is because anger is hot inside of your bosom. Anger is extremely hot inside of your bosom. As as anger is in there, what you want to do is you want to fix it. (laughs) And the way you want to fix it in regards to anger is that you want to cut and you want to destroy and you want justice. The only statement you can ever hear, be angry, do not sin, don't let the sun go down in the anger. The only person that could ever say that is God. Why is he the only one? Because he carries all justice. He carries all justice. See what he's doing? He's saying, just look at me in this process. Look at me. Look at you and look at me. Yes, you're angry. Do not sin. Don't let the sun go down. I am a God of justice and I'm a God of righteousness, meaning that I will make it right. You've got to depend on me in this. You've got to walk with me in this. Everything in the end will be disclosed, and even the process of this earth, things are going to be taken care of. Lean on me. Don't separate from me and go smolder, even if it's righteous anger, because if you do, you'll destroy the ones that are next to you. You'll destroy the ones that are closest to you. I mean, this passage is literally just God wrapping his arms around us. Be angry. Do not sin. But you've got to release it in times where you can relax, in times where you can have a smile. The world needs nothing more but to see life. We've been given the gospel, and we've been given life in the process, so there's got to be joy on our face. Even if we have this righteous indignation, we've got to let it go before the sun goes down. There's got to be times where we let it go. Proverbs 27, anger is cruel and fury overwhelming. What I mean by let it go is there are times that we just need a break. There's times where we need a breath. There's times where we need to laugh. There's times that we still need to find joy in our life in this. Number eight, don't give the devil the opportunity. The King James says, don't give the devil a place. What does that mean? That means he doesn't have a place and he is looking for one. And it doesn't say if you sin, you're going to give devil a place, but it says if you're angry, you're going to give devil a spot. And what is just the names of Satan? Wicked one, murderer from the beginning, father of lies. He seeks to destroy. He prowls around like a hungry lion. He is a destroyer. He's a manipulator. He is a liar. And he wants to be in you to, for you to do it to the person standing next to you. That's what he wants. And what happens in this passage says, be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil a foothold. He does not say, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil a foothold. It says, do not means it's a something else that you're doing. Don't let Satan to have a foothold, because if he's a father of lie, if he's a father of bitterness, if he brings destruction, he wants inside of you to bring destruction to those who are around you. 
Don't give him the opportunity. Anger, that hotness inside of us, that fire inside us, it can invite Satan in to destroy the ones that we love the most. We need to know that. We need to know that. Christian leads a godly life not because they're told to, but because they're infused with a glorious fact of who we are. Therefore, lay aside falsehood, speak the truth to one another, be angry, and do not sin. Take the garments of the old life and put it on and structure yourself that I am now a person in Jesus Christ. And when I walk out the door, the world, I pray, sees it. That's why we do it. God, I just thank you so much so we can open up your word and we know it's fact. We know it's truth. We know it's right. Thank you, God, that you have no falsehood in you, that you've never lied. Thank you, God, that we can know what is right next to your heart and we can observe it by seeing what you were angry at in your word. Thank you, God, that we can understand how you function in your word because of that truth. God, what a gift it is, and we thank you for it. But God, as we're reading it this morning, I just pray that we'd be infused by what we have, infused by what has been granted to us. We do want to walk in accordance with your will, and we know, God, that as a result of what you've done for us, we can. Empower us, God, to put it on so the world will know that we belong to you. In Christ's name, amen.